Well, good morning. My name's Evan Owens. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors at the Journey Church in Lebanon, and uh, Pastor Matt called me uh, a couple of months ago and uh, needed me to fill in last month, but I, I couldn't. And so you got Anthony instead, and now, uh, and I heard Anthony was received very well. Anthony is a, is a great, great guy, and uh, I enjoy working with him on a daily basis. And, uh, but Matt said, hey, I need you another weekend if you can come. And so I'm happy to be here with you all uh, this weekend. I was here a year and a half ago, something uh, uh, along those lines. I don't remember exactly, but glad to be back with you all. Uh, my family's here, my wife, Megan, and my son, Mac. He's seven months old, and my mom and dad are also here. We all live in Lebanon and, and attend uh, Journey in Lebanon. So glad to be with you all this morning. Hey, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Now, when I go somewhere to kind of fill in, I'm always kind of wondering where where has the pastor been? What have you been talking about? What have you been preaching? And I want to be careful not to, you know, preach something that maybe you've heard in the last uh, little bit. And so I think I'm pretty safe when I say turn to Haggai chapter 2 that the pastor has probably not been there recently. And I talked to I talked to Pastor Matt anyways and I know he hasn't been in Haggai chapter 2. Don't turn too fast. You'll flip right over it. It's right after Zephaniah, just one of the minor prophets there. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think the minor prophets meant that they weren't as important as the major prophets, but that's not true. They are just as important. They're just smaller than the major prophets. That's why they're called the major prophets and the minor prophets. But Haggai chapter 2, and uh, we'll get to this story here in just a moment. I really think it's uh, very relevant to our churches today and what we have to do and the work that we do for the Lord. But you, you, we, we live in this age of where we want to compare everything, right? And so whatever it is, we make comparisons all the time, whether it's in our own lives, comparing ourselves to one another, or, you know, I'm a huge sports person. And so there's always this talk of, well, who's the greatest? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback of all time? Or is it, you know, Joe Montana or Peyton Manning or all these different things? And we're just constantly making these comparisons between different things. And then we, we compare Coke and Pepsi. What's better? Coke, Pepsi. And, and the list could go on and on and on and on and on of things that we compare. We make these comparisons on a daily basis, and I think sometimes we don't even think about what we're doing, right? We'll go to the grocery store. Well, which one's cheaper? Should I buy this pack of flour or this pack of flour? Well, which one's cheaper? And so we compare the prices on all those things. We compare uh, insurance plans. You get the point, right? We're constantly making comparisons between one thing and another. And that slips into our own lives as well, right? We begin to compare ourselves to other people. We begin to compare our churches to another church down the road. And, and we may think, when you know what? I'm not doing too great right now, but at least I don't have it as bad as that person. Or we might say the opposite. Why can't I have what they have? Or we may say our church is, our, our church is doing okay. Why aren't we having the success that that church is having though? And so we begin to make these comparisons. And, and a lot of the comparisons we make are harmful. I mean, they're harmless. Sorry, they're harmless, right? It's not, if you like Coke better than Pepsi, good for you. If you like Pepsi better than Coke, good for you. There's nothing moral about that type of decision. There's nothing moral about who you think is the best quarterback of all time. There, it's just, those things are harmless. But when we begin to, compare ourselves to, to other people and begin to compare our churches to other churches, then those harmless comparisons can become sinful. 
We can let pride or envy seep into our hearts if we make these comparisons and and we begin to think that we uh, are not getting what we think we should get or that we're doing better than somebody else. And and those things can slowly creep into our hearts and what was once harmless now becomes harmful, becomes sinful. And so in our text this morning, we find the Israelites playing this game of comparisons. And they're they're, they're comparing the temple that they're building to the former temple. And they become so discouraged that they don't feel like this temple is as great as it used to be that they want to give up. They can't see past what it used to be. They can't see past the comparisons of what they're building to what the temple used to look like. And they get so discouraged, so envious of the former glory that they want to quit. And so what I want us to see this morning, by the time we leave, by the time we examine this text, I want us to see this, that no effort for the kingdom, no matter how small, is wasted by God. No effort for the kingdom, no matter how small, is wasted by God. So let's take a look at this text. I would imagine it's probably one that you're not too familiar with, but that's okay. You will be by the end of the day today. Haggai chapter 2, and I'll begin in verse 1. It says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet Once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. So I've got four observations from this text this morning. Before we get there, though, I want to give you just a little context of where we're at in history, in the just overall redemptive history of Israel. Um, And so they are just returning to Jerusalem. In the year 586 B.C., Jerusalem was ransacked and just pillaged by the Babylonians. Babylonians took over Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and drove the Israelites out of Jerusalem. And so they are in exile. The the Jews are in exile under the uh, power of the Babylonians. And about 50 years after that happens, King Cyrus, who is the the, uh, emperor and leader of Persia, he comes in, he defeats the Babylonians. And so the Babylonian empire falls and we see the rise of the Persian empire. So about 50 years after the temple is destroyed and the Jews are ran out of Jerusalem, Cyrus comes in, he defeats the Babylonians, he takes over, and he allows the Israelites to return 
to Jerusalem. And so a remnant of these Israelites return to the city of Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild their lives that they once had before. And so 538 BC, they, they uh, head back to their homeland and they head back to rebuild the temple. All of this is prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. And among those that return is the prophet Haggai here that we've just read his writing. And in this small book, he, he writes in regards to the rebuilding of the temple. And if we look at the dates in this book, we see that it was about 18 years after they returned to Jerusalem that they finally decided to start rebuilding the temple. And so about 50 years, they're in exile. King Cyrus takes over. They return. And about 18 years later, after returning to Jerusalem, they finally start to rebuild the temple. Now, if we were to read chapter one, here's what you would see. You would see that the Israelites lived, although they were back home, they had a lot of dissatisfaction. They weren't happy. Their lives were tough. Their lives uh, were just not the way they wanted it to be. And finally, God says to them in Haggai chapter one, listen, here's the reason that you are not satisfied because you have not done anything to rebuild my house. He says, you have come back to your land. You've come back to Jerusalem and all you have done is just try to get your life back in order and you have ignored my house. And he says, until you begin the work of my kingdom, of my house, the temple, he says, you will be dissatisfied. So there's a good principle there for our own life of prioritizing the work of the kingdom over our own needs, over our own wants. 18 years they were dissatisfied, even though they were back in their homeland because they ignored the work of the Lord. And so finally they say, okay, we're going to begin rebuilding. We're going to begin this project of building the temple of God again. The things of this world ultimately will always leave us wanting more. And only that is what is of the kingdom of God will truly satisfy us. And so they begin the rebuilding of the temple. And that's where we pick up the story. And that's where the first thing I want you to see this morning, verses 1 through 3, is that we must be on guard against discouragement. In our own lives, in our own churches, we have to be on guard against discouragement. You see, these folks, they had begun the work of the temple, and what it looks like is about a month into it, they're ready to quit already. About a month into the work of rebuilding the temple, they allow discouragement to creep into their lives to the point that they want to give up. And that's true in our own life sometimes. We allow discouragement to creep in, and it leads us to a point of wanting to just quit, just give up whether it's a a season in our life where we feel like we're just not growing in the Lord the way we want to. Maybe it's just a season in life where things are just hard, right? It's a discouragement at work, discouragement at home. Our our kids are not doing what we want them to do. They're being disobedient all the time. And and as much as we want to, to, to just try to correct them, right? We're just becoming so discouraged with their behavior or there's just someone at work who we just can't hardly stand and, and they get on our nerves and we're discouraged and we don't want to go to work, right? These things creep into our lives so often or our church isn't moving the direction we want it to move or the list could go on and on and on. These things in our lives that we become discouraged about. And ultimately what happens sometimes when we become so discouraged is we lead ourselves to thinking that, well, it would just be better if we just quit. If I just tried to to stop, you know, if I just didn't do this, then I wouldn't have to deal with the disappointment. And that's the point they're at here with the rebuilding of the temple. They know how glorious and how beautiful and how majestic Solomon's temple was. They had heard it, been passed down 
throughout history, through their family, as Solomon built up this incredible, ornate temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And now here they are, they're just rebuilding this temple and they don't have any of the materials. They don't have anything great. They're just rebuilding a building and they're just thinking, listen, this is, this doesn't compare to the former glory of Solomon's temple. And as they look at it, they're just like this, what are we doing? This is nothing compared to what it used to be. We should just give up. We should, we should quit. Look at verse three again. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? And so they're just thinking this, this temple is nothing. We're not doing any good here. The work that we're doing is ultimately meaningless. This, is, this can't compare to what it used to be. And so they're to the point we can um, infer from the text that just saying, why? Why continue on? Why go on? It's not going to be what, it's used to, what it used to be. It's not going to return to its former glory. And so we give up. And we live in a time, just as, as these folks did, about a month into their work, they just think, it's not worth it. And isn't that the way our lives are so often? We want quick results. We want what we want, and when do we want it? Now, Right? We got fast food, we got fast money, we got fast answers, we, right? You want, you want to know the answer to something? Get on your phone, Google it. It's there in less than a minute. You've got the answer. This is the culture we live in. A fast answers, fast results. And if I don't get it quickly, then it's not worth having. That's our mindset. And what I'm here telling you this morning, that's not anything new. We have always struggled to be committed to things. We have always struggled to trust that results will come in the end because the Israelites were doing the same thing. They're rebuilding the temple and saying, well, this is nothing. Why are we doing this? This doesn't look like it used to. And so they are discouraged by the work that they are doing. And we know that feeling of discouragement. Uh, last month, uh, I, ran a, I ran a half marathon. I know it doesn't look like I ran a half marathon, but... Don't laugh at that. It's not very nice. It was my second half marathon. And so uh, a few years ago, Megan and I ran one in Murfreesboro. And and I just determined that I was going to run another one. And I wanted to beat my previous time. And so what I had ran, and the first time we ran it, I was just determined, you know what? This time I'm going to train. I'm going to beat my former time. And so because I wanted to be able to compare and see that I did better. And so... I trained for months by myself. She had just had the baby, and so I wasn't able to train with her or anything like that. And so I'm out running around my neighborhood, uh, you know, three, four times a week trying to train for this race while my son's screaming at home probably. But I'm just kidding. He doesn't scream very much. He must not like my preaching. Uh, So I'm training, and uh, it gets to race day, and I'm thinking, man, I'm ready to go. All my training times had been better than what I had done previously. And, and so I'm just feeling really good about uh, beating my previous best time. And we get to race day and the first seven, eight miles of the race, I'm cruising right along. I'm on pace to beat my time by about 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, about mile eight, nine, my legs just went dead. Like I just felt like I was just dragging two bricks with me for the last four or five miles of that race. 
And so there was a moment I had a big blister popping up on my heel. My legs felt like I was just carrying bricks. And so about mile 10, there's a little shortcut where you can get to uh, the finish line if you wanted to. You just give up on the race and just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to beat my time. And so about mile 10, I start to feel that discouragement. The, the pacer had passed me. I knew that I was no longer on my pace. I knew that I wasn't going to beat the time that I had the time before. And so the thought crept into my mind, you're not going to beat your time. Just give up. What's the point in continuing? What's the point in finishing? If you're not going to beat what you did before. If you're not going to do better than you did before. And that thought just ran in my mind for a couple of miles. And then I finally determined, you know what, I'm going to finish, mostly because I paid $75 to run this race. But the reality is that discouragement was real, and it almost caused me to just give up, to just give up. And that's what discouragement can do to us sometimes. It can cause us to get to the point of thinking, you know what, this isn't worth it. This effort, it's not worth it. I'm reading my Bible. I I don't feel like I'm growing the way I should, so... I'll just give up. I'll I'll quit reading. Our church isn't growing like we should, and we're not, you know, reaching these people, and so we'll just stop trying to reach more people. We'll just love on the people we've got. Discouragement rarely leads us to anything positive. It leads us to one of two things most of the time. That is giving up, which we've already talked about, or it leads us to taking control of the situation to taking things into our own hands. When I think about this, I think about Abraham and Sarah who were so discouraged that, that God had not fulfilled his promise to them yet. Right? He was gonna, God was going to provide a son for Abraham and Sarah. And yet here they are in their 90s and, and 100 years old and just thinking, God, I, you told us. You told us you were going to give us a son. You were going to give us an heir. And I'm sure they were discouraged that that hadn't happened yet. And what did they do? They took control of the situation. And they said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Abraham, you lay with my servant, Hagar. And so they did. They took control of the situation. And they brought it into their own hands. And Abraham had a child with Hagar. His name was Ishmael. And you follow the story all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And nothing but trouble comes from the Ishmaelites. Nothing but trouble comes from that decision of them trying to take a situation into their own hands. God provided, obviously he provided Isaac, and he still blessed them even though they had disobeyed him. But what we have to realize is that God doesn't work on our timeline. And so sometimes our efforts, they may not look like they're paying off, but God is producing something out of them that may come further down the road. So our efforts for the kingdom, we must continue in them, continue to work, continue to push forward, continue to be obedient to what we know God has called us to do, even if we don't see immediate fruit. Even if we don't see immediate fruit, we've got to continue to do what we know is right. We can't allow discouragement to keep us from doing the work of the kingdom or to do something blatantly outside the will of God. He is using our efforts in our own lives and the lives of our churches for his glory, even if it seems insignificant at the time. He is using our efforts. So we got to be on guard against discouragement. We can't let it get a grip on our heart. So that's the first thing. Be on guard against 
discouragement. Number two, we've got to prioritize kingdom work. We must prioritize kingdom work. What does that mean? Here's what we mean. We must leverage our spheres of influence for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom. We've got to leverage our spheres of influence for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom. And your sphere of influence is much different than mine. We could look at each other in this room and every single one of our spheres of influence would be different. And yet all of us are called to leverage those for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. It is no accident that God has put you in the church that you are in, in the family that you are in, in the neighborhood that you are in, in the community that you are in, in the job that you are in. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that the Journey Church Hartsville exists right here on this corner of Main Street in Hartsville, Tennessee in the year 2018. The sovereign God of the universe does not work by accident. He works on purpose. He knows exactly what he is doing and he has placed you in those places for his glory and for the building up of his kingdom. And so we've got to prioritize kingdom work. He has placed you there for a reason. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we all have to quit our jobs and serve the church 24 seven. No, it means we begin to look at our family. We begin to look at our work. We begin to look at our community through the lens of the gospel and see what we can do to push people towards Jesus in all of those areas. Wherever you're at, you have a chance to reach people that I will never come into contact with in your workplaces. You have a chance to build relationships with people that I will never have a chance to build a relationship with. It's in your family or at the ballpark or wherever it might be. That's why God needs all of us working together to build up his kingdom. To use the areas that he has placed us and the talents that he has given us for the work of the kingdom. It's not not all up to the professionals, the pastors, the staff, the whoever it is at, at a church or an elder. It's up to all of us. We're the body of Christ followers of christ we're ambassadors for christ and that continues when we walk out of this door on sundays as ambassadors for christ prioritizing the work of the kingdom we serve at church but we serve our families we serve our neighbors and we serve our co-workers as well it's what we're here to do and the israelites had not prioritized the work of the kingdom and they ultimately weren't satisfied i told you that earlier right haggai chapter one And God says, you need to get back to my work. You need to get back to uh, building up the temple, doing the work of the kingdom. And so we've got, got to prioritize kingdom work. Number three, we must remember that we do not work alone. We do not work alone. This is how we know that no effort for the kingdom is wasted by God. Because with every effort that we do for the kingdom, he is with us. This is a promise all throughout scripture that God will be with us wherever we go and whatever we do. Look at verse four again. He, he asked them this question, is it nothing as nothing in your eyes? And he says this, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in 
your midst. Fear not. God says you can continue this work the temple because I am with you. You remember that promise I made to your people as you crossed the Red Sea, as I parted that for you so that you could escape Egypt. I promised that I would always be with you. I would never leave you or forsake you. He says, you remember that promise? I'm still here. He says, my spirit still remains in your midst and I'm not going anywhere. And the same is true for us. The God who parted the Red Sea The God who led them through the rebuilding of the temple is the same God who is with us here in Hartsville, Tennessee this morning. And he will not leave us. What are we about to celebrate? Christmas, right? What's one of the names of God that we truly celebrate at Christmas? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God with us. He's with us everywhere we go. And everything we do. And so for every work that we do for the kingdom of God, everything we do in our churches, every person we try to disciple, every child that we try to disciple, adults, teenagers, he's with us. We don't work alone. And we can know that he's not wasting our efforts because he is with us every step of the way. And he can't forsake us. That would deny his character. It would deny who he is. And so we don't fight sin in our lives alone. We don't speak to our friends, neighbors, co-workers about the gospel alone, and we don't try to build up our church alone. He's with us. He's with us all of the time. And this promise that he will never leave nor forsake us has to be enough for us. It has to be enough for us. But so often, here's what we do. We don't focus on what we have. We focus on what we don't have. We don't fact focus on the, on the fact that we have the presence of God with us on a daily basis. We focus on everything that we don't have, right? And so we begin, we play this game of comparisons again. And we think, you know what, if I had that person's music ability, if I had that person's courage, if I had that person's boldness or that person's ability to speak, then God could really use me. Then I could really do something for the kingdom. Or as a church, we might say, if we just had, you know, a new building or we had some other spaces, and I, I know y'all are going through some building stuff right now and, and, and all of those things, right? And we begin to say, you know, if we just had that, then we could really do what we're called to do. The reality is that I have talents that, that you don't have and you have talents that I don't have, but the reality is we're still called to use those talents that God has given us for the glory of God, for the building up of his kingdom. And whatever our churches look like, right? They all look different. They all have different characteristics, different styles, different whatever. And God uses all of them for the building up of his kingdom, glory of God. Because he's with us. His spirit indwells in us as believers. And so we are called to go. We are called to work for God is with us. And that's more than enough for us should be more than enough that God is with us. So, final thing here. So we've got to be on guard against discouragement. We've got to prioritize the work of the kingdom. We've got to remember that we do not work alone. And then the final thing, we must trust that God controls the results. We must trust that God controls the results. After God encourages them to, to keep working, he points them towards the future. Verse 6 through 9, the rest of that little passage there, he begins to talk about the glory that will come. 
He says, you may not think your work will amount to much and and the temple is not as grand as the last one, but he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do with this temple. Verse 6, he says, for thus says the Lord, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, the glory of this temple that you are building will far exceed anything that the former temple ever saw. The glory that this temple will see will far exceed anything, he says, because the fullness of my presence will dwell in this temple said, it's all mine, and I will rebuild this temple, and the latter glory will be much greater than the former. What God is doing is reminding them that they must be faithful to do the work, and then they should trust him with the results of that work. Trust him to produce the fruit. Trust him that he is working among them. And this is where we struggle with the timing of God. We want to see the results, and we want to see them right off the bat, right? And when I think about that, I think about two missionaries, famous missionaries, William Carey, Adoniram Judson. These are two of the really uh, most famous and some of the first missionaries to really go into hard-to-reach places and try to spread the gospel. William Carey, uh, he's from Britain, and he served in India in the early 1800s. Judson was an American, one of the first American Baptist missionaries, and he served in Burma in the early 1800s as well. For Carey, it was over seven years working in India before he saw anyone come to proclaim the name of Jesus. Seven years. Seven years he labored on the fields in India, spreading the gospel And it took seven years before any visible fruit happened. For Judson, as he was in Burma, six years. Six years before anyone called upon Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For most of us, what would we have done? About a year into it, we would have just said, well, these people are beyond hope. Guess I better get back home where people will listen. Guess I better get back home where my message will be more fruitful. But they knew what God had called them to do. And they were faithful to do the work. And they trusted God with the results. And they just continued to labor. They continued to work. I'm sure there was discouragement. I'm sure there were problems. And if you read their biographies, there were all over the place. Sickness, uh, wives dying, and, and everything else. And yet they knew what God had called them to do, and nothing was going to get in the way. They worked. They labored. They knew God was with them. So we mean we have to trust that God is operating on a different timeline than we prefer. But that doesn't mean he's not working. doesn't mean he's not working. John Piper once famously said this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Just because we can't see what God is doing doesn't mean that he's sitting back doing nothing. It's not who he is. It's not how he operates. 
We're not aware of all he's doing, but we can trust that he is working. We can trust that he is doing all things for his glory and for his good. And we must remain faithful. We only see a fraction of the work God is doing in our lives, much less the work he's doing in the lives of those around us. So we have to trust that he's in control, trust that he is sovereign, trust that he is good. And that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God, through his prophet Haggai, points their eyes towards this future glory. He says, trust me, I will use this work you're doing. Trust me, the glory that this temple will know will be much greater than the former. He's pointing their eyes ultimately towards Jesus. He says, this is the greatest manifestation of God's glory, the greatest manifestation of God's presence, the image of the invisible God, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. The Christ who suffered on the cross, died for sinners like you and I, and arose victorious over sin and over death so that by believing in him, we may enter into that glory one day. That's the glory he's speaking of. That's the temple he's pointing them to. Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb. And he says, that glory will be much greater. And then he says, guess what? You'll get to partake of that glory. Because by believing in Jesus, his presence, the presence, the image of the invisible God will dwell in you. He says, so trust me, I will use your work. Trust me, the glory will be much greater. No longer does God's presence dwell in the temple, but in all who believe upon the name of Jesus. And this is how the gospel changes everything. That Jesus died for us to bring us back to God so that we can enjoy him, so that we can partake of his divine nature, Second Peter says, so that he can dwell in us, so that he can be glorified in us. And so we fix our eyes this morning on Christ. We work for the kingdom on this earth in different places that God takes each of us, but we do so with eyes fixed upon our Savior. And we trust that he is using our efforts, no matter how small they might be, for the good of his kingdom. And we work for God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for your word this morning, a passage that... Most of us are probably not uh, familiar with, but one um, that is encouraging. That you promise that you'll be with us and that we can continue the work of your kingdom wherever we go. And Lord, I pray for that this morning. In our different workplaces, in our different homes, different interactions we have with people in our communities. That we will see those interactions, we will see those times through the lens of the gospel, and that we will prioritize the work of your kingdom. And we'll see each encounter, each opportunity as a chance to build up your kingdom and to bring you glory. And to labor and to work. And as we do that, we know that you are with us. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that you are the same God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. You're the same God who helped them rebuild the temple, who led them to the promised land. And you are the same God who sent your son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, to die on the cross for sinners. That's who you are. You delight in being with your people. So may we trust 
that we don't work alone. And may we trust that you are producing fruit, sometimes fruit that we will never see. But God, we know that our labor for you will not be in vain, but it's for your glory and for your glory alone. And so we praise you this morning. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Evan, for uh, delivering such a great message from, like you said, a passage that uh, we're easily just kind of dismiss, throw away, say, hey, this is for somebody else and some other time and that. But uh, God's word is always timely and always applicable.